This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our 2021 Limited Jurisdiction Update Part 2. Uh, this year was uh, so busy that we had to break this into two parts, in large part because, as you'll see from today's presentation, today's presentation is primarily rules. Uh, please mute yourself unless you're asking a question. And uh, if you want to leave your camera on, please make sure that you are paying attention. Uh, our presentation this afternoon, and you can ask questions in the chat box. This will be uploaded to YouTube afterwards. The materials are in the Judicial Resource website and were emailed to everyone in advance. Uh, I want to welcome our co-presenter, Judge Anna Huberman, who is the presiding judge for the Maricopa County Justice Courts and has been the, uh, the one and only judge for Country Meadows Justice Court. She actually created the precinct and, and uh, has been there for its entire existence. So let us welcome Judge Huberman and let us get rolling. So our outline today is we will talk about rules and legislation, ethics, traffic, criminal matters, evictions, protective orders, weddings, and juveniles. And this is part two. Uh, it, we're not uh, going to repeat part one. Uh, part one was a rather lengthy uh, presentation in and, its, in and of itself. And uh, you can click on the link for the YouTube video or you can listen to the podcast. The materials were sent out again too. So uh, we're, we're covering new ground today. We're not going to talk about cases, case law. Uh, we have the same thing. You have uh, it's available on both YouTube as an audio-only podcast. And I'll turn it over to Judge Huberman. Oops, sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, everything um, that we're going to talk about, the statutory changes, um, go into effect tomorrow. So everything that we're going to talk about um, uh, goes into effect tomorrow, and then the rules, most of them will go into effect come January. So the, the first uh, statute change um, is the community restitution rate. Um, you might remember that um, a couple of years ago, uh, the, by statute, by legislation, it was determined that community restitution would have a certain value. Um, and it was set at that time at $10 an hour. What they've done now is found a way to update it without having to do a legislative change every time we wanted to change the amount um, that the hour of community restitution would be worth. Um, and so it has been amended to the state minimum wage rounded up. So currently the state minimum wage is 12.15. That means that uh, community service starting tomorrow should be credited at $13 an hour. Um, or I guess it's gonna go up, but it, it will be less than 13. So it'll still be credited at $13 an hour. Uh, but this right. way, if it goes up to $15 an hour, uh, then the community restitution rate will be $15 an hour without a need for legislative change. Yeah, it's supposed to go up to about $12.80 in, in January, but since we round up, it's still going to be 13, so it'll be 13 for a while. 
So um, I think this, this was a major uh, change, which is the preemptory change of judge. Um, oh, I'm sorry, this is the change of judge. The, the during the pandemic, uh, through the administrative orders, the uh, automatic change of judge in all case types um, has been suspended. And there was a rule petition to make that change permanent, that there would be no longer um, any type of uh, change of judge uh, for right, uh, but that was not uh, approved. That rule was denied. So right now, the administrative order is still in effect. So there's still no change of judge. Um, but because the rule was denied, we assume that at some point that will come back. And then this was, as I got confused before, the jury peremptory challenges. This one was the rule that was adopted and it eliminates peremptory challenges in jury selection. So the way this was, um, the way the rule was passed is that they proposed the change for the rules of uh, criminal procedure and the rules of civil procedure. And they forgot to include the rules for um, civil procedure and justice courts and the eviction rules. Uh, I, I have been in contact with the people at the AOC. The attorneys said that that was an oversight that the expectation was that all juries would be uh, affected and that there will be some um, uh, supplemental or amended rules uh, to include the cases that uh, that we see in the in the justice courts for in civil and then for all eviction trials whether that be in superior court or uh, or in justice courts um, until that happens right now it's only for our criminal cases um, so until the end of the year, we're still under the administrative order that limits the preemptory strikes to one per side. And then come January 1st, there will be no more preemptory uh, strikes in jury, uh, in criminal jury trials. Um, the only strike will be for cause. Uh, our, the, the, they're looking into if there needs to be some changes in the rules on challenge for cause, uh, and if there's gonna be offered some type of um, training on this issue. Um, so stay tuned. I think that even if the Supreme Court doesn't offer a training, that we will here in the justice courts offer a training uh, on dealing with strikes for cause. And, and as part of the GOHS uh, conference in December, which they're planning to do in person, uh, the Wednesday before will be a day devoted to jury trials once again, and there will be a panel that will address the loss of uh, peremptory challenges and how that will affect the challenges for cause. Uh, so you might want to pencil in those days. Uh, the note that I put there, too, uh, is, as Judge Huberman indicated, the Supreme Court is now aware of the oversight 
they're meeting again in December, and so it's possible in December they'll correct the oversight and eliminate the peremptory challenges in justice court and eviction matters as well. I mean, I, I, the only thing that I would add to that is that, you know, the, the fact that the peremptories have been eliminated uh, has not changed the nature of the strikes for cause. A strike for cause is still a strike for cause, and there is no, um, there, unless some of those rules change, that the, it doesn't make that the standard for cause has to be higher or lower or whatever because there's no more peremptory challenges. Um, but I still think that's something that there will be training on and that we'll be talking about. All right, and then the last, go ahead. This one's yours. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Um, the, the the service by publication, um, this just made it clear that the party can initiate service by publication without uh, needing a, a motion or an order from the court to do so. Um, this was always the case or the practice that we had in justice courts. The parties would uh, publish and then they would uh, because when service by publication um, it requires that a default hearing have uh, that a default judgment have a hearing first, then we were getting the due diligence information um, at that hearing. Uh, so this was always the practice in the justice courts. Now it uh, it's specifically written into the civil rules. Okay, and I'll, uh, I'll remind everyone that if you leave your camera on, you'll be memorialized forever on YouTube, so make sure you're paying attention or you can um, turn your camera off. All right, we're going to do talk some judicial ethics. In part one, we went through some of the judicial decisions. Now we're just going to limit ourselves to some of the rule changes. There were a couple of rule changes that will make it... Um, a little more interesting for judges because uh, in the past judges have been very hamstrung in what they can respond to. Uh, judges run for election and can't really say very much. Their opponents can say whatever they want uh, and not face any uh, recriminations unless they actually win. Uh, so now they're have, uh, they've added comment seven to rule 1.2 uh, which does allow a judge to respond concerning the judge's conduct or to false, misleading, or unfair allegations or attacks upon the judge's character or reputation. And um, that uh, allowing that can serve to restore or maintain public confidence in the judiciary. Along the same lines, uh, 2.10e, They've added uh, a judge may respond directly or through a third party in writing via social media or broadcast media or otherwise to allegations in the media or elsewhere concerning the judge's conduct in a manner or to false, misleading or unfair allegations or attacks upon the judge's character or reputation. And the comment there again says that this can um, help to serve or restore uh, public confidence in the judiciary. Even with these changes, um, I, you know, I, I say never approach the line, let alone cross the line. 
Uh, so I'd still be very, very careful with any public statement that you're going to make and, and never hit that send button in anger. Make sure that you have uh, settled down before you, you release that. And I'll turn it over to Judge Huberman for traffic pieces. All right, so this um, is, is the, I think we've been talking about this. This just comes a surprise, but as of tomorrow, um, there will no longer, licenses, driver's licenses will no longer be suspended for non-payment of civil fines. Um, not only that, uh, there, uh, from what I've read, there's approximately 30,000 driver's license currently suspended in the state of Arizona. And tomorrow the MBD is going to lift all of those suspensions that are for non-payment uh, of fines. So I personally uh, don't know exactly what to expect uh, from the MBD. Um, if, if, if they're gonna require anything additional uh, from from any of the of the people who have their license suspended, but uh, going forward they will no longer be suspended, and they do not require the defendants to actually do anything. There's no more um, having to go there and 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 pay the fee to to have it uh, lift the suspension. That they're all going to be automatically lifted. Um, Last I heard, we're still trying to work on whether there's still going to be a $30 default fee on, on cases uh, that they don't pay. Uh, the, the, the fines will still be defaulted if the person doesn't pay, but their license will no longer be suspended. And, and then, it, looks, it looks like the county attorney did say we can continue to charge the $30 default fee. Okay, I, I hadn't heard that last update. Um, and then the, you know, a lot of people think that this means that now there's no consequences and that people won't pay their fine. Uh, I think it's a matter of waiting and see what will happen. I think that people who pay their fines are still going to continue to pay them. Um, and the people who didn't pay them before obviously now well, won't be paying them. Uh, but the cases will still go to collections. So they will still be in fair, they will still be in collection, they will still go through all the collection procedures and the tax intercepts and all the other stuff that was happening. Uh, so it's not that the fines are going away, just the suspension of the license. And then, um, except for DUIs now, every fine that is a mandatory fine that before we could not eliminate can now be mitigated um, if, if there's a hardship. I would suggest that any time that any of these fines are mitigated, that there be a specific finding, uh, whether it be on the record or written in a note in the file, saying that uh, you have found hardship and that is why you're mitigating the fine. Um, it is, uh, I, I think a, a lot of, it's easy for all of us to, to fall into a practice of, of you know, talking to the defendant or, and, and determining that they can't pay and just reducing the fine. Uh, but it does really require a finding of hardship. So um, I would suggest that that always be done. Um, so any fine that before could not be mitigated, um, I'm, I'm, I'm contracting without a license that had a mandatory fine. 
I don't want to give registration because that comes later. There's a specific thing for registrations now. Uh, but any other mandatory fine uh, is uh, it can be mitigated uh, lower than, than the mandatory fine. And I do want to interject here about um, lack of insurance because I did get a question that, well, does this mean now that that a defendant doesn't have to have a motor vehicle record to uh, suspend or waive the fine for lack of insurance. Well, if you found hardship, presumably yes. However, keep in mind that you do need the motor vehicle record to not suspend the driver's license for lack of insurance. Uh, so um, if, if you don't have that motor vehicle record, your license will still be suspended. And also keep in mind that a suspension for lack of insurance is not a non-payment uh, suspension. So that is going to be a criminal offense if someone has an insurance violation, gets the driver's license suspended and gets pulled over on that. The other thing I want to interject is there was a, a question in the chat box about community restitution and does that affect old cases? Yes, that affects every case our computer systems are going to automatically supposedly change those to $13 starting tomorrow. I, I guess the interesting question is if somebody did community service last month and turns it in next week, does it get credited at $10 or $13 and probably the 13? I'll turn it back to Judge Huberman. Um, so because of these changes, did we skip over the registration or does that come later? That's later. Okay. Um, because we because these changes did happen because there's no longer license suspensions and the, there's this ability to mitigate mandatory fines, um, the civil traffic rules have to be amended just to conform to these statutory changes. Um, so they've removed the references to suspending licenses. Um, and and uh, and and the changes in the forms and everything uh, that's related to these statutory changes. And then the 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 new rules now have changed. Um, we did propose a shorter name, but the rules are now going to be called Rules of Court Procedure for Civil Traffic, Boating, Marijuana, and Parking and Standing Violations. Um, because marijuana now did get added, um, it, it's it, it's a civil offense, but not a civil traffic offense. So it's a category all of its own, um, and so it was added into these rules. But the name, you know, had to be updated. Uh, so the changes uh, were made to add all these marijuana and all the parking violations um, into the to the, these rules. And again, it removes the suspension of license um, and changes a lot of the mandatories, right? The must to shall, uh, the must and shall to, to, to make them um, not mandatory. And then this is what I was mentioning, the registration. Um, now all registration violations, if the defendant shows proof of registration, it is uh, dismissible. The, the offense can be dismissed. Remember before, one of the registrations not only couldn't be dismissed, but actually carried a mandatory fine uh, of $250. So now um, that 
if they show proof of registration, that one can, uh, that, that, that charge is now dismissed. So that is, I think for me, that's gonna be a big difference because we definitely get a lot of those cases where we always told them uh, that even if they brought registration, we couldn't do anything. Uh, we couldn't go lower than the 250. And you'll see it's retroactive to July 1. That's because this was in a budget bill. Now, if you heard the news yesterday, uh, Maricopa County Superior Court judge uh, addressed four different budget bills and threw out the portions that were not actually related to the budget. This was not one of them. So 1829 was not one of them. However, if somebody were to challenge this, the same logic would apply that what in the world does this have to do with budget? Um, so, I, you know, I don't think anyone is going to challenge this, but if somebody did, it, it might not survive that challenge. All right, so let's move on to criminal matters. And we uh, we are talking about this one again because uh, we we talked about this in part one. It's this is still uh, fascinating. This this is a one sentence uh, statutory change. This applies specifically to DUI jail sentences. But a person who receives time served credit towards a mandatory term of incarceration for a violation of this chapter must serve at least eight consecutive hours for each day of credit. Uh, and so if you are going to accept a change of plea, and that change of plea is asking for jail time uh, for the time that they spent in custody, uh, I think you do need to investigate and ensure that they did at least eight consecutive hours before you give credit for that. Uh, and uh, for prospective jail time, I think they need to do at least eight hours. Judge Huberman, did you want to add anything? I mean, I think that we're going to get a lot of pushback. Um, I, I've heard uh, that some judges think that it's not our responsibility to determine the, the, how many hours were done and that if no one is, is questioning it, that we should just go ahead and give credit for whatever amount of custody is presented. Uh, I agree with Charles that that it is our responsibility because that's what the statute says that we can't we can't give credit if it's not for at least eight hours so i think it's our responsibility to verify the eight hours i think it might be a problem in the future how we're going to verify the eight hours uh, we have heard that the jail is looking into seeing if they can provide us with uh, better information uh, so so we would have a clearer idea of what time the person was taken into custody at what time they were released and you're going to hear defense attorneys argue that case law does say that any part of a day in jail is is a day in jail. Uh, and that is case law. However, statute can change case law. And this is a specific statute that specifically applies to the DUI offenses. All right, this one is a good one. Yay. Uh, for years, we've complained that 13-905, uh, you, could, you could set aside DUI, you could set aside reckless, but you could not set aside criminal speed, uh, which actually made a, a criminal speed violation uh, more serious for someone, for example, who uh, may be applying for citizenship. Uh, well, now all of the criminal Title 28s will qualify for set-asides. They can still be used as priors. They're still subject to ADOT penalties. ADOT never forgets. Uh, 
never. So don't worry, don't worry about that. Uh, and you know, so there may still qualify for points and other suspensions, but you can set set it aside. Um, and so then it's up to that person to ask their attorney, what exactly does that mean? I can tell people, although we're going to talk about that in effect too. So there are some various criminal uh, statutory changes uh, to to the rules because of the statutory changes. Uh, and we saw that some of these were required because of the pandemic, but Rule 26.10 was amended regarding fingerprints within 30 days rather than the time of uh, sentencing. 29.3 reduces response time to an application to set aside to 30 days. And then 29.7 was added regarding the certificate of second chance. Uh, and uh, Rule 7.62 is added regarding failures to appear for bond forfeiture hearings, and that's a typo that is actually going to be in effect on January 1, 2023. All right, the Certificate of Second Chance, and this has caused a lot of heartache. Uh, a lot of judges have asked a lot of questions, and here is the simple answer. This doesn't change anything about the set-asides, what it means or what it does, except we're going to give the defendant a piece of paper. Uh, and if you're going to grant a set-aside, you do have to determine whether or not you're going to do the certificate of second chance. There's no blowback on you if you do a certificate of second chance and the person goes out and kills somebody. Uh, although, you know, if you're giving a certificate of second chance for someone who uh, is uh, guilty of criminal speed, there's no reason that that's foreseeable but there is judicial immunity. Uh, we do finally have forms for that. When I did this, uh, this said draft, I've crossed through the draft because this, the final does look uh, essentially like this. And so this is the application for a certificate of second chance. At the end of the presentation, there's a link to the Hightail website uh, where I put in all of the new legislation, nearly everything that we've talked about in part one or part two is in that website. And I put the final forms in there as well. Uh, so you'll see uh, in the order, and this is the order for a set aside, it, it's now a little longer and you are gonna decide whether or not you're gonna grant or deny the application uh, for a certificate of second chance. Why this is kind of unfortunate is the legislature didn't have to make us do this extra piece of paper. They could have just changed the definition of set aside to say, by the way, when we set aside something, this is what it means, uh, but they didn't. And so we do have to create that other piece of paper. And terminating probation. Can I just say there though, um, I, 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 I guess that anytime there's a petition to set aside, it ends up in the basket uh, for the judges, you know, for what signature. Um, for those of you who are pro tem, uh, you might want to be sure that your judge does want you to sign uh, those set asides before you you do that, you know, because I don't know what the criteria that each judge has for set asides is, um, and that may be something that uh, that. It's good for you to have this information, but it may be something that the judge may not want the pro tems to sign. And I would just suggest that's something that you should uh, probably find out with the court before you start signing these. And, and that is a good tip. Uh, leave it 
for the most part, you, this should go to the judge who did the trial. So unless you did the trial, you shouldn't be doing it unless the judge has retired or is no longer available. So thank you. All right, terminating probation. And we did talk about this in part one, but it, I think this was another major change that we are, if, if someone is on probation and we're gonna terminate probation, we do need victim input and we do need uh, to determine whether you have to issue an injunction against harassment against the defendant. If, if you think you need to issue the injunction against harassment against the defendant, then uh, maybe um, it, it shouldn't be uh, granting uh, terminating probation. Uh, so just, just keep that in mind. All right, and the representation and bond and release conditions. Uh, so rule 6.1F was amended to allow representation by legal paraprofessionals and rule 7.3A2 was amended uh, to say that the defendant must be released on their own recognizance unless the court determines that additional conditions are reasonably necessary to assure the defendant's appearance or protect the victim. All right, so there's a question, uh, doesn't the statute say to issue a certificate of second chance if the person has not previously been given one? That is correct, uh, and if so, been given one by this court or any court. Uh, the certificate of second chance applies to the criminal offense. So if you're giving a certificate of second chance, it's only for the convictions that you are setting aside. It doesn't apply to any other convictions. There is a, a new financial affidavit form uh, that was adopted on July 2, uh, and um, it is a one-page form. It, it's a much nicer and much cleaner financial affidavit form than the one we've been using forever. And interestingly on this one, uh, the judge does not have to sign it at the bottom. So uh, keep in mind when you are appointing a public defender, you when when uh, the AOC comes and does their audits, they do look to see that uh, financial forms uh, are um, are in the file. All right, and this one is just in for the sake of completeness. We're, we're not going to get a lot of these, but Rule 11.4b was amended regarding qualifications and disclosure of expert witness reports regarding the defendant's mental status. And telephonic arraignments, uh, we can thank Judge, Ho uh, Judge um, Andrew Hedinger for this one. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the rules of criminal procedure is in the past, it did talk about audiovisual arraignments. Well, telephone is audio, it is not visual. Uh, so arguably telephonic arraignments were not appropriate. Now we, because of the Supreme Court administrative orders during the pandemic, they did make telephonic arraignments uh, acceptable. And this rule change uh, effective January 1 will make that permanent. So we can do telephonic arraignments. And the 100 mile limit has been eliminated. Correct. And so for marijuana expungement, uh, rule 36 was a, uh, made permanent that had previously been adopted uh, because of Prop 207, we've, we've talked about this before, uh, so that is now permanent. All right, Judge Huberman, evictions. 
Okay, so again, um, as, as, as part of the, the trend that we've seen um, by the legislature uh, kind of incorporating some of the things that uh, we did on an emergency basis during the pandemic, um, and one of those was uh, virtual appearances and eviction actions. Um, so that is now included as a statutory change. Um, so now in uh, special detainers or forcible detainers on so all eviction actions, um, any of the parties, whether it be the attorney or the witnesses, the defendant, uh, can ask to have their initial appearance remote, uh, to appear remotely. Uh, either by phone or by video. Um, if then it gets uh, continued because you're setting it for trial or something, uh, then it is the discretion of the court if you want to have, hold that in person or not. Um, I can say that personally as a judge and uh, and as, as in my role as the presiding judge, I am encouraging all courts to continue with the remote appearances the the uh, the experience was that more people appeared uh, with the virtual appearances than when they had to come in person. Um, I think that you know the fact that it was the pandemic and that some of these people were home anyways or they were in a in a, in a, in a worse financial situation because of the pandemic or whatever it may be um, could have been one of the driving factors to have them appear in person. Uh, but we don't know exactly, you know, what it, how this is going to work out. And I think that we should still continue to offer these virtual appearances. Someone should not have to take a day off work because they need to come to 10 minutes to their, to their court appearance. Um, so I am encouraging that we, we do allow. And then now, by statute, we must allow them um, in the... In, in these eviction cases. So then the rules that were changed uh, in accordance to this legislation um, now amend the summons that it has to include uh, the, the fax number. I, I can't imagine who's going to use a fax number, but the email address and the website of the court so the litigants know how to contact the court um, and that it has to include the language saying that they may participate uh, by phone or by conference and that they should contact the court two hours before to get instructions on how to do so. Um, the, the notice, because they have to give notice that they want to appear virtually, um, can be done by any of these means. It can be done by email, by fax, by phone, or any other type of electronic process indicating that they will attend, that they do not need to have an actual signature on it or an original signature. Uh, for that request to be valid. Um, and then the fact that they didn't give notice uh, should not really be a basis for anyone to deny them uh, their that, that appearance. What we definitely don't want is someone to appear virtually and the judge say, I'm going to consider this a default because you didn't give notice that you are appearing virtually. Um, and the, so this means that the courts have to have a way for the parties to appear virtually. Um, so, you know, the courtrooms up until now had been set up um, either with Court Connect 
or with Scopia. Um, so all the courts actually have the technology and have the setup for these virtual hearings. Um, at some point, Scopia is going to go away and it will only be through Court Connect. Uh, but again, it is the obligation of the court to have something set up because the parties are have this opportunity and we can't just say, you know, I forgot to log into Court Connect and so whoever was there didn't get to appear or something. And then, it, it, you know, it's up to the court that to allow the people who did not give notice that they were going to appear virtually, there's nothing that doesn't allow that appearance. So uh, again, like I said at the beginning, you know, I would encourage that everyone continue doing remote appearances and allowing people and actually encouraging people to appear remotely. Um, and then um, the there was just a cleanup, and I, I think this was I think this was Charles who who, who caught this um, that in the residential information sheet that we were attaching to all evictions that the language was part of the rules uh, there was the word procedures uh, in the title uh, which was incorrect and so they amended that and corrected the name of the residential information sheet uh, but it wasn't the the procedure sheet. Um, All right, we'll move on to protective orders. And so this is the other part of the termination of probation one that we talked about earlier. In addition to when you're terminating probation, you have to determine if an injunction should be issued. There's now another definition of harassment, which is uh, which will include any, any one instance of contact if the person is the victim uh, of a specified list of crimes committed by the defendant, and that includes a conviction for an offense, whether completed or preparatory, that is a dangerous offense, a serious offense, or a violent or aggravated felony, or any offense in Title 13, Chapter 14, or 35.1, those are sex offenses. <clears throat> And so uh, the rule was amended to uh, conform to that statutory change. So I have redone my one page on uh, bench card on injunctions to include now the definition uh, that it is one act of sexual violence um, or one act if the defendant was convicted of a dangerous offense or a series of uh, of events for everything else. All right, the other huge change that's going to go into effect on January 1, and and I heard uh, another judge who's normally on top of this yesterday say that this snuck by her as well, uh, but there is now a provision that uh, effective January 1 at a contested hearing if a plaintiff seeks to testify or present evidence about relevant allegations that were not included in the petition, the court must, and, and I'll highlight must, allow the plaintiff to amend the petition in writing on a form provided by the court, a copy of which the court must immediately provide to the defendant and offer the defendant each of the following options, a continuance of the hearing within the time frame specified by Rule 38 to allow the defendant the opportunity to prepare for the additional allegations, 
or a brief recess to allow the defendant the opportunity to review the amended petition and prepare for the additional allegations or an explanation of the options above and an opportunity to waive them. If the defendant waives both the opportunity for a continuance or a brief recess, then the court must proceed with the contested hearing on the amended petition that includes the additional allegations. This does reverse case law, uh, which had intimated in the past that even if the defendant agreed to address allegations that were not in the original petition, that that could be considered coercive. Uh, so that does reverse that. It does raise procedural due process allegations uh, or concerns. And my concern, my biggest concern is the issue of self-incrimination. Uh, if this is a, if it's a pre-issuance hearing, there's no problem. If this is a contested hearing, then the uh, order was in effect. And if, if the petitioner wants to make allegations after the petition was granted, the court must allow that if the defendant agrees. And so if that allegation is, well, he called me after the protective, or he texted me after the protective order was issued, and the defendant says, yeah, I just texted her to pick up the kids, he has just admitted to the crime of interference with judicial proceedings, which is a class one misdemeanor and a domestic violence offense. Uh, so I have real concerns that this, this is going to uh, lead to issues of self-incrimination. I, uh, I believe the bench cards are going to be written to include warnings on, uh, for the judges to be careful that we don't have defendants self-incriminate. Uh, and um, this this will have to be addressed in the future to make it clear that the uh, the petitioner cannot add allegations um, in a contested hearing after the issuance of the protective order. All right, children on petitions. This is another interesting one. Um, those of you may recall that uh, Judge Gerald Williams and Judge Bruce Cohen had introduced a petition to address the situation where we have a non-parent um, and what, what happens in, in our limited jurisdiction courts is a person loses in family court, so then they go to a limited jurisdiction court and they file against the, the, the new lover uh, and try to include the children on those orders. And that, of course, affects the, the other parents' um, parenting uh, rights or parenting abilities. And so uh, Judge Williams and Judge Cohen had suggested that judges not do that, or limited jurisdiction judges not do that, that they could go to family court. Well, um, the Supreme Court decided not to do that. Instead, they added Rule 35F, which does allow the limited jurisdiction court to do that. And then the other parent will have to go to family court uh, for uh, a remedy under Rule 91.6 of the Rules of Family Law Procedure, which was newly created. And so that does require the affected party to file in family court and allows the family court judge several options, including transferring the court of the order to family court to modify the order. Uh, and keep in mind, we still have our best practice with as, uh, for children as protected parties on injunctions where we suggest that to the extent, you know, if, if it's pretty clear that what they are doing is you know, trying to mess with the uh, ex-spouse's parental rights or abilities, 
um, and there's no emergent reason to do it, that at the very least you not include the children on the petition. Uh, Judge Huberman, did you want to add anything on that? Uh, no, I mean, I think that, um, I, I don't know how blunt you want me to be. Um, I, I, I think that it's very easy when we're in a situation that we are issuing ex parte motions or ex parte orders uh, to just grant whatever they're asking for. And, you know, just sign off on the children or sign off on the spouse. You know, we I, I've seen many orders that end up including other adults as protected parties or, um, and, and I think that it's just easy to mark all the boxes and say, oh yeah, this sounds like, you know, I need to order the, the, the this injunction or whatever it may be, and then mark all the boxes. Um, and, and I would just suggest that we be a little bit more thoughtful about what boxes we're marking and why we are marking them and why those children uh, need to be included or not. Okay, we'll talk about weddings and, and we've, uh, I, I put scheduled this at 45 minutes or at 45 minutes now, don't worry, I'll, we'll change the certificate to one hour. Um, well, I mean, the weddings, uh, there's really not too much to say. Um, you know, the, the, there, there was an issue in, in Pima County on the way they were conducting the weddings. Um, there also might have been some fallout between the their uh, county manager and and their judges. Uh, in the end, uh, the the county took over the uh, the wedding services in the courts. Um, they charge a set fee for all wedding ceremonies, and uh, the JP who performs the wedding is given ten dollars out of the amount that they're charging. Um, outside of the court hours or outside of the justice court, the, the, the judges are free to do weddings as they wish. Um, we are not in that situation in Maricopa County. We don't anticipate that this will come, uh, but because of what happened in Pima, they are looking at the way weddings are conducted around the state. Um, and this is being looked at uh, by, the, uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, in truth, uh, because of internal policy in Maricopa County, pro tem should not be doing weddings in co-located facilities um, if there is an actual elected JP there to do them. So you all should really not be doing weddings. Uh, weddings may be done in the standalone courts, uh, as long as those exist. The, 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 they will exist for, for uh, maybe a, a one or two more years. Um, those can be done if the judge is not there. Um, so in, in as much as you are as pro tem doing wedding, just be sure that you are uh, keeping the involvement of the staff to a minimum. They should not be involved in collecting money, in signing the or preparing the, the licenses or any of those things. Um, just be aware that um, this this is being looked at and um, and that we should be sure that we're following that we're adhering to all the policies and all the uh, the canons on, on ethical conduct as to the weddings. And 
I, I also do want to clarify a, a couple things about weddings because there, there does seem to be confusion and there really should not be confusion. Uh, weddings before five o'clock, um, you can do weddings before five o'clock for anyone, not just military, as long as you don't take money. Uh, so, and as long as it does not interfere with court business. So if you've got people waiting in the courtroom, you can't do a wedding. If there's no other court business, you can do a wedding before five o'clock. Do not take money for that. And I'll say that again, do not ever, ever take money for a wedding before five o'clock. Uh, I, I don't know how to be more clear, uh, and yet it does happen. Uh, there was a question about uh, the forum attachment E. Um, that policy has been in existence for years, so that has supposed to have been done all along. And, and also, the, this last point, uh, make sure that court staff is not involved or, or they're, they're uh, minimized in their work effort in the collection of money for weddings. We'll talk briefly about juveniles. And, and this uh, became less of an issue with the Supreme Court uh, interpreting the statute in a way to, uh, well, we'll say 8-221 was amended to require the court to appoint an attorney for all juvenile delinquencies before the first hearing. And um, so that would have included the matters that we see in limited jurisdiction courts. If, if your court handles juveniles, then we would have been required to appoint an attorney before the first hearing. Uh, which is insane because uh, uh, we don't have uh, uh, attorneys available um, for the most or at all at the arraignment or at the initial. Um, and so this, this really would not have been an option. Uh, luckily, the Supreme Court concluded that the legislature could not possibly have intended that. Uh, so they amended rule, uh, juvenile rule 10B to clarify that the appointment of attorney for indigent juveniles before the first appearance is upon the filing of a petition. And so since we don't have petitions in limited jurisdiction courts, this will not apply to limited jurisdiction courts. They also threw indigent in there, which was not in the statute either. So the Supreme Court did clarify that on the theory that it couldn't possibly have meant what it did. If for some reason it does apply, then we would have to begin an advisory with the court has already appointed the public defender to represent you. Uh, the public defender is not here, so you can waive the attorney and proceed today. Uh, or if not, we'll continue this to a time and the public defender would be available and then we'll get a lot of shouting from the public defender because now they're being appointed on um, juvenile cases. And so at this point, we'll. Uh, take any questions. Uh, there, there was a question that went back to the set-asides and uh, Judge Huberman, did you want to address what to consider when we're doing set-asides? I, I don't see the questions. I don't know why I can't view them. So I don't know what the question was. The, the, the question was to address the standards for set-asides. They were sent privately to me. Okay, so the, the, the standard for the set-aside is just that all of the um, all of the terms of the sentence have to have been completed. Um, so that is the only thing that is the, the, the real standard. Uh, but it also um, is that the person uh, that 
you know, I believe at least that it, that it needs to show that the person has, has learned from their mistake and, you know, is not going to do this again. Um, and if they come in the day after they were sentenced, once they paid off the fine and asked for the set aside, um, you know, that, that's kind of up to each person to determine if they believe that that person um, actually is deserving of that set aside at that point. Um, I know that there's one particular attorney out there who is in their set-asides uh, specifically writes in their motion that the fact that not enough time has gone by is not a basis to deny the set-aside. Uh, I personally don't agree. I think that if not sufficient time has gone by, it is a basis to deny it. Um, but um, I, I can't, I don't have a set time to say how much that has to be. And definitely, you know, a speeding ticket would be different than a, than a DUI or, or a theft or, you know, it, I guess kind of determining who the, who the defendant is, what the crime is, will all be taken into account. And I agree with that. I mean, what you want to look at, if the defendant has done everything you've asked them to do, then that certainly works to their advantage. But I also do want to see a period of time where they have remained law-abiding, and that the period of time where they've remained law-abiding would depend upon what the offense is. You know, obviously, you want to see somebody remain law-abiding longer after a DUI than after a criminal speed or driving uh, driving in violation of a restriction on glasses, for example. So, all right, any other questions? And, and if you have a question, you can turn the camera on. I will stop recording. Once I figure that out. This conference, this conference. All right, we're recording. Uh, so you can go ahead and change your uh, CoJet certificate to one hour. Uh, we'll make a note that while it says 45 minutes um, that we, we did go an hour, although it would be nicer if we had at least one more question to get us a little closer to uh, one. Uh, the materials are available in uh, the Judicial Resources website. Uh, there's also a link to all of the materials, uh, all of the new uh, legislation and the rules packets. There's a link to that in Hightail as well. And um, everyone have a terrific day.